0: Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Though, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. Then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and keep having to come back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've just said is quite true. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. "'Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, "'but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.' "'Woman,' Jesus replied, "'Believe me, "'a time is coming when you will worship the Father "'neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. "'You Samaritans worship what you do not know. "'We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. "'Yet a time is coming.' And has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. So his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us then Jesus declared i the one speaking to you am he it's a passage that comes from John's gospel John chapter 4 and I wanted to surprise us with it today so that we might hear it in a, in a fresh way but we're in a, a series at the moment called habitat and we're really trying to look at the habits of our lives Uh, Those things that, when you put them together, kind of make up our day. When you put our days together, make up our weeks. You put our weeks together, they make up months and years and effectively make up our lives. So what are the habits that make up you? What are the things that shape your morning, that that shape your life? And we trying to take those apart because some of those will be really healthy. Some of those will be unhealthy. We're trying to look at the life of Jesus uh, and others in the New Testament to ask, what are the, the spiritual practices What are the disciplines, what are the pieces that Jesus deliberately built uh, into his life? Now some of you uh, here this morning will be thinking, uh, that's great John, but why are we not singing? Usually at this point uh, in the service you've sung a chorus for like the fifth time and we're getting ready to sing another song again. Why are we all sat down listening? What what happened to the music this morning? I'm sure the band felt that they were on part time this morning. (laughs) But I want us to think today about the habit of worship. The habit of worship. Some of us maybe you've been coming to church for a while and have wondered, what is it about these Christians that they they just love this moment of community karaoke? They love to look at the screen and and sing together. What what is that about? Why why singing? Of all the things that we could do as we gather together? Why why is singing so important to us? Well, the first thing I want to say is that worship is not singing. Now, that'll sound bizarre to some of us today, because if I was to ask us to kind of play blankety-blank this morning and kind of finish that phrase, Worship what? There's all kinds of words that we would very naturally put in. We might think about a worship song, or a worship leader, or a worship band, or a worship area, or a worship time. If you really want to get into it, there's this sort of subculture that you can explore that helps you to do singing better, and to do that well together, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to do it well together, but worship is not singing. Yesterday, um, I went with one of my kids, and I won't say which one, because it will embarrass her, but uh, <laughs> she loves that joke. Um, we went to a charity shop together, and we were looking around the shop, and she bought something. I, I, I learned a new phrase, did you know things could be ugly cute? No, I didn't know that, however, apparently that's in, that's a thing, that's cool. And to show how with it and cool I was, I bought a jigsaw puzzle. (laughs) And it's a a type I've never seen before. Apparently there are clues to solve a murder mystery on the jigsaw puzzle. So as you put them together, uh, you'll be solving this puzzle. And so that's going to be sat on our dining room table probably for weeks now. Um, But it's interesting when you pour out the pieces uh, of the jigsaw puzzle. You always look for the ones with the straight edge, don't you? And it's unbelievably exciting and satisfying when you find one with two straight edges, isn't it? You've got a corner piece. Now, worship for us today, sound worship as we gather together, might be one of the pieces that make up the picture of what worship looks like. But it's not a corner piece. It's not an edge piece. We had to discover, didn't we, during that awful period of lockdown, what it meant to worship without singing together. That was so strange for us. There was a season when we could gather, you had to book in, you had to come with masks and listen to other people sing. Some people forgot and started to mumble along and then remembered very quickly the panic on their faces, singing in church, shocking. Because we associated so much, don't we? It is part of gathered worship. It might be part of our personal worship, but it in itself is not a corner piece. It's, it's not even an edge piece. So what is worship? If you were to Google worship, you'd get all kind of images that would point us towards those moments where we sing together. But what is it deep down? A lot of books and teaching that you read on worship will take you to the English word, worthship uh, That act of ascribing worth to something. Attributing value to something. It's really interesting, isn't it, that... that idea that where there's been work, there's worth, that people are worthy of their, their wages. And So as we look at the world around us and we see the wonder of God's creation, it's been interesting, hasn't it, on the podcast that we've been doing along with this series, how many people have said, if I really want to connect with God, I've got to get outside and into nature. We look at the beauty and the wonder of the world around us and we wonder where does this awe and wonder need to go? Where does my thanks and appreciation have to be aimed? There's a sense in which there's a worth that has to be attributed somewhere. And in worship, it's true that we want to come and ascribe worth to God. There's that psalm, isn't there? Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. In the New Testament, one of the songs of heaven Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's right that we sing of God's worthiness. But this word, worship, I think it's kind of interesting. Sometimes we go back to the English word, but that only gets us so far. Uh, It's not, by any stretch, the fullness of what the word worship means. Uh, So in the original language, the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek is proskino. Can we say that together? There you go. If you think it's pronounced differently, you can tell me afterwards. But you don't know, and I don't know. But we'll go with proskino. When the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they ask Herod, where is the one who has been born to be king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to proskino. We've come to worship him very early on, from day one almost. Jesus is recognized as worthy of something that no human being should be worthy of worship. Proskino. What did they imagine the Magi were going to do? Because you couldn't plug PowerPoint in in a stable. There's nowhere to plug the band in. So what did they think they were going to do? Well, you can break it down uh, into two Greek words. Uh, one is pros or prose, which always means towards. So if you look at the word for prayer, it's literally the word to wish towards. To long towards. Towards We turn the longings of our heart towards God. We recognize that I cannot satisfy myself, I cannot fulfill myself, I can't just serve myself. I'm I'm pointing them to the one who is God, who can help me, who's promised to be there for me. I'm, I'm leaning towards something. And the word kino, it sounds a little bit like the Greek word for dog, but it literally means to kiss. So the word literally means to lean in, to kiss. So what Herod and others imagined the Magi would do is to find Jesus and literally to bow down and to kiss the ground before him. These people from distant eastern lands who came with costly, expensive, symbolic, prophetic gifts after probably something like 18 months plus of travelling bow down and there's joy in this moment for them, they're overjoyed that they get to do this, to bow down fully to kiss the ground there's a song that we learned a few years ago I am broken at your feet like an alabaster jar and the chorus says and I will bow my life at your feet, my lips so lost for words When was the last time we were lost for words in the presence of Jesus? My lips so lost for words will kiss your feet. And that's worship. To surrender. To bow. To be so aware that we are in the presence of that which is greater, that which is other. We want to bury our face The early church described worship as the kissing ground between the bridegroom and the bride. As we approach Jesus, we kiss the ground. That's what the word worship literally means. It could often get interchangeably used for bow-down, but that's what it it literally means. Interestingly, there's another context in which the word could be used, uh, and that was the word of when a dog came up to its master and licked its hand. It's a picture of both... (laughs) ultimate reverence, ultimate awe, and intimacy. There's this beautiful coming together of recognizing, God, you are other, and yet you want me to be close. God, you have made a way for me to come into a place I could never have come on my own. And when something of that wonder, something of that gravity, something of that gratitude grasps us, all we can do Your majesty, I can but bow. Sometimes we sing these words so often we get too familiar with them. I can but bow. What else can I do, God, but bow? Another song that we sing regularly by a guy called Matt Redman, who's probably written over half of the songs that we sing regularly, is a song called Face Down. Uh, And that comes out of a season when God was teaching him about what it means to be a face-down worshipper. He went right throughout the scriptures and listed everybody who fell face down in worship. And it's easily into double figures. A fall face down. And he writes this, that when we face up to the glory of God, we find ourselves face down in worship. And it's just true, isn't it? The glory of God, the splendor of the King, I can But bow, and yet we come to one who welcomes us. And yet we come in a moment of intimacy and awe. I love this story from John's Gospel so much. I love it for so many reasons. But I want to focus today on the conversation that takes place between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. It seems so important to me today that if Jesus says there is a kind of worshipper the Father is seeking that we should apply our hearts to ask, well, is that that who I am? Is that where I am? We're told that Jesus is is on a journey. It's a long journey. He has to go through a place called Samaria. Now, most Jews would never go through Samaria. The Samaritans were like this theological half-breed. The Jews had kept themselves separate. They'd not interbred with other nations. They're not intermarried. But the Samaritans had been quite happy to do that. And Because of that, there was this big divide, and one of the issues that came up with this divide is Samaritans could not now go to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem, if you don't know, is high up on on the mountains, and so they built the center for worship, high up on their mountains. And the Jews and the Samaritans did not associate one with another. There's this intense rivalry and bitterness and prejudice, one for the other. Uh, You were taught, if you were a Jew, if you saw a Samaritan in your street, then the God-honoring thing to do was to spit on them. The phrase, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, translates more literally, they don't share the same cutlery. That's what they thought of each other. And so when Jesus goes through Samaria, he's saying something quite different about who this God is, but what God is, is really like. When he sends his disciples to go and buy food from Samaritans, Saying something very different about what God is really like. And wouldn't it be good if you didn't talk about them as they Samaritans, but you got to know them, got to learn their names and support their businesses and learn about their families. Wouldn't it be good if you went and bought food? But Jesus sends them to do that. And he sat by this well and he's thirsty. And this Samaritan woman comes out. And John takes the time to tell us that it's noon. It's the hottest point of the day. The sun's the highest in the sky. What is this woman doing, going to draw water at the hottest point of the day? Culturally, you did it early on in the day, so you had water for your house and your family for the rest of the day. That was a cooler time to do it. The sun wasn't that high yet, there were the long shadows of the morning, and you could go out quite easily, and it wasn't as dangerous because they tended to travel as a group of women together to go and get water. The fact that this woman is alone, and is there at noon, are red flags that there's something up. But Jesus says to this woman, a Samaritan woman, alone, in the middle of the day, suspicious, could you give me a drink? Don't you just love Jesus? A million reasons why he could have looked the other way and nobody but a bastard denied it. Can I have a drink? And she looks at him and asks the question that everyone else is asking. How How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, forget the fact that men did not speak to women on their own in public ever, especially rabbis. How can... And then Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is who asks you? You'd have asked him. He'd have given you living water. And there's this conversation that arrives. Well, how can you? You haven't got a bucket. How can you give me living water? And eventually, it transpires Jesus is pointing to a greater reality, a spiritual reality. She cries out for that. God, would you give me this water? So I haven't got to keep coming here on my own in the middle of the day. She senses that there's something in Jesus that can satisfy that, which nothing else has satisfied. Here is a man who can give her something that no other man has ever given her. Would you give me this water? And Jesus says, yeah, just go and get your husband. And the reason she's on her own becomes abundantly clear. I haven't got a husband. No, you haven't got one. You've had five. Five men. Five relationships. That's why she's on her own. Who wants to be friends with a woman like that? Who wants to welcome a woman like that into their family? Five. And even more scandalous back in the day. And the person you're now with is not your husband. See, Jesus wants to show her, I know I'm not talking to you because I don't know. I'm talking to you and I know. I know your past. And I know you put on a face in front of others. And I know you don't really want to face it. But I know. And it is to you I say there's living water. This woman's got a past, but who hasn't got a past? And she can recognize that Jesus is more than a a human person, she sees that there's a spiritual dynamic here. She says the highest thing that she could have said at the time, I can see that you are... There's not been a prophet in Israel for about 400 years. I can see that you're a prophet. God, you've you've got this insight into me that is not... It's not about Sherlock Holmes detective skills or mind reading. You can see me. You're a prophet. And then there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction. I know this conversation is coming, so I'm going to get it in there early. We worship on this mountain; you worship on that mountain. So, what are we going to do about that? It's interesting this thing about five men, five husbands. There's a an American, or there was an American uh, writer, I think, speaker, famously uh, very atheistic very aggressively uh, atheistic. There's no God, there doesn't need to be a God, and as soon as we get rid of all this notion of God, from society, the better. And he was asked to give a uh, graduation address to a bunch of students. And really surprisingly, he said this, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. This is the poster boy for atheism. There's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of things. He says, if you worship money, You'll never have enough. You'll always be chasing it. If you worship status, there'll always be someone higher. If you worship your appearance, age and all kinds of things will rob you of that. All of these things that we worship, he says, leave us feeling unfulfilled. He goes on to say this. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. The truth is, we were made to worship. Pascal put it brilliantly when he said, there's a God-shaped vacuum. We often say God-shaped holy, He didn't say that. He said vacuum. There's a God-shaped vacuum inside every human being. We're created for worship, and so we long for it. We, we look for it. Uh, by our very nature, we are worshippers. But what Jesus says here is that there are true worshippers, and there are false worshippers. By its very definition, if there are true ones, there must also be false ones. We'll look at that in in just a moment. Uh, There's another fabulous book. It was written back in the uh, 1800s by a guy called Thomas Chambers. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Isn't that a great title? Mm -hmm. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And He was writing, I've been interestingly dipping back into it, a fabulous little book uh, to think about our habits. And he says when it comes to changing our habits, what we need, really need to do to lose our taste for our old sinful habits is to be so consumed with a love for Jesus that we don't want to do those things just because we love Jesus. An incredible little book. And in that book he writes something very similar. Interestingly, he gets somewhere very similar to this atheist. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart. It must have something to lay hold of. The heart must have something to cling to. And for this woman, for some reason, it's been men. Must have a man and must be married. And we don't know the full history, we don't know the full story, but we know the mess and the brokenness and the hurt that has led her to and left, I'm sure, behind her too. The heart must have something. So I wonder today what it is that you worship. What is that thing that gives you that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction? That thing that feeds you? That thing that you run to to protect you? See, when God told us, you shall have no gods before me, he's telling us that for our good, not his. Because it will only lead to hurt, unfulfillment, shame, and guilt. The heart must have something to lay hold of, but by our nature we worship us. The choice is what are you going to worship? I was thinking about that this week as I was looking at this story again. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus actually is not talking about worship. He's talking about worshipers. I wonder today if you would describe yourself as a worshipper. I wonder if you would describe yourself as a true worshipper. Jesus tells us these are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. We describe ourselves in all kinds of ways, don't we? Especially in Christian circles. I'm a born-again Christian. I think Jesus said you have to be born again, so there's not really another type of Christian. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Is there another type of Christian out there? The people who get together say, yeah, I'm going to argue with you because I don't believe the Bible, and yet I'm a Christian. And yet Jesus never highlights either of those things. What he does highlight is the Father is looking for true worshippers. So what is it that makes somebody a a true worshipper? Well, the argument that this woman puts up first and foremost is really interesting. The argument that she raises is about place. Wouldn't it be awful if there was a time in history where people got so obsessed with the place that they worshipped that they would fall out with others? What's the old joke about the Welshman on the desert island? That's the church I go to, and that's the church I don't go to. You say there... We say there, how are we going to get on? And Jesus, brilliantly, in the way that he does, will not be drawn into this either-or. He finds this third way. He reveals the truth. The time is coming. Can you imagine a Jewish audience listening to this? The time is coming when you won't worship on your mountain. Yes, Jesus, give it to her. Nor in Jerusalem. David's temple? Solomon's house? That that won't be where we worship. Jesus says, true worshippers will worship the Father. It's not about the place, it's about the person. It's not about the where, it's about the who. One of those words that you might have finished that (laughs) blankety-blank game with earlier especially if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, worship wars. The churches fell out over is worship what we do with hymn books and organs or with choruses and guitars. One or the other, it's got to be here or it's got to be there. It's got to be this way, it's got to be that way, it's got to be this style. I've got to feel or experience something familiar, otherwise it is not worship. Sometimes we wonder, don't we, after a worship service, we do that thing in the car on the way home, we kind of give it a little review. How'd it go? How'd they do? How'd you do? Worship is not what's happening up here. It supports and inspires and enables and equips. It's not what happens there. It's not what happens up there. I know we all look up there. Happening in here. True worshippers will worship the Father. So the first question we have to ask today is have I got that relationship with God? Not can I say father in my prayer? This is not about worship as magic words or box ticking or if I say the right thing, it's not like God sits up on a cloud and thinks I would have answered that prayer if you'd I said the right words. It's about do you know him as Father? Do you come to him for daily bread? Do you run to him when you've made a mess? Do you bring to him what's broken? Do you cling to him with your heart? They'll worship you, says the Father. And then in spirit and in truth. That word spirit there, always throughout Scripture, can either be translated as spirit or breath or wind. The inner life of a person, the spirit of a person. What happened when God formed us out of the dust? He stooped and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. There's a worship song I was listening to a while ago that says, It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, returning to God what he's given to us. The inner life of a person. And we can argue, we can fall out over length or style or what and where and when, but that's not where worship happens, it happens in spirit very often when that word is translated it's referring of course to the Holy Spirit and that's when real worship happens when our spirit reaches out and the Holy Spirit touches our spirit in spirit and in truth what did Jesus say to the Samaritan you worship what you don't know we worship what we do now, for salvation is from or, or of the Jews, the truth of who God is. That's why we take time to think seriously and deeply about his words, because we want to get it right, we want to know who he is, in spirit and in truth, in the reality. There's ways in which that word true can be used, that this word is often used as a polar opposite of the word <laughs> Illusion in spirit and in reality. The reality of who he is, I can but bow. The reality of what he's done for us, then sings my soul, in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. So one question I want to ask before we um, move on together this morning is, so when we get together then, if worship is not singing, why do we Sing. So, of all the things that we could do as we gather together, we, sometimes we sit around tables increasingly, don't we, and have a chance to share together and pray together and work together. And That's all great after this morning's service. If you've remembered, if not, you're welcome to go bless a shop in the village and bring food back. We're going to sit around tables <laughs> and eat together. We're going to talk together, about the church together and pray together. That's all great. That's all worship. But why is, is such a big part of it Singing. But part of it is this whole thing about spirit and truth. If I started some song lyrics this morning, let's see if you know the rest of them. At first I was afraid. I was hoping someone would sing it. Uh, There's a whole bunch of songs that we can do that with. When did you sit down and learn the words to that song? You didn't. Singing has a power, doesn't it, to teach us. I had a great chat on the podcast, it hasn't been released yet, with our very own Paul Rock, Mr. Mr. Podcast himself. (laughs) And he was talking about songs, and how songs get in you. How many of us, when we pray, start to quote songs that we sing in church, hymns that we sing? I love it when a song is full of scripture, because I know, give me a couple of weeks, give me a couple of months, that's in there then. It's in my sort of short-term memory, but then it'll be in my long-term memory, and then it'll be part of my thinking. Singing is a powerful thing. It means that we can gather together, we can do it together. When when I sing a song with you, there's unity in that, isn't it? I could be singing anything. I could try and sing it slower, I could try and sing it faster, I could try and sing it louder, but to sing together in this moment of unity, the truth of who God is, In Colossians, Paul writes these words, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through, now is Paul going to say writing letters? Is Paul going to say here preaching? Is Paul going to say small groups? What's Paul going to say? You're going to teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We learn something about who God is as we worship together. Sometimes that can be a very meaningful, moving, emotional experience, but for it to be true worship, it doesn't need to be. God will often profoundly move when we worship together, but we do not worship for that. We worship because he's worthy of it. Because what else could I do? Where else would I be? What better thing could I do with my life than to become a true God? Worshiper, Worshipping the right who in the right way. The Father in spirit and in truth. I want to give you one more thing just because this has really grabbed me recently. Um, you'll know this, this psalm. It's a very uh, famous one. He put a new song uh, in my heart, a hymn of praise uh, to our God. Then he goes on to say, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. You're going to hear this song and join in, and put their trust. The word for trust there in the Hebrew is describing a complete abandonment. It's not like you're keeping well, I trust. It's like I'm throwing myself fully onto God. Abandon. That's why the Message Translation translates this verse. It says, he taught me how to sing the latest God song, a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. They enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. See, if I, as I come to worship, either here with others or on my own in countless ways, if I leave as in control as I was before I started, I have not abandoned myself to God. If all I've done is try to bolster God, would you do what I want you to do? Would you be part of my life? Or if I've just ticked a box, that's done. It's Sunday, so I should go and I should do. And I have not abandoned more of myself to God because this is not a one-off thing, is it? We think that we trust, but then we fear. We think that we trust, but then we meddle and we fiddle and we tinker around the edges. Abandoning ourselves to God will start now and finish on the day he calls you home. And in worship, if all I've done is to leave the same way I've come in, still holding, still clinging, still controlling, still manipulating, I haven't worshipped. Sometimes we ask them, did you get anything out of that? Well, what did God get out? What did you give? Worship. The habit of worship. So I thought it would be great this morning to have some time to respond in some time of song worship together. There will be some songs that sing, you may want to stand with us and sing, you may want to sit and reflect, you may want to bow. Some of us today may want to kiss the ground, spread out before God, complete abandonment. What does that look like? Let's not sing, let's worship.